Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Back in the 70s, when I was a young reporter in Hartford, there was a group known as the Ebony Horsemen. They were based in Hartford's North End, mainly, uh, and they were keeping a lot of equestrian traditions alive. And I don't know if I really grasped at the time that they were making an, an intentional link to the history of the black cowboy. About one quarter of the people we would think of as cowboys in the Old West were, in fact, black men. Uh, and in a few cases, women, as you'll hear. So we're going to tell those stories, and we're going to talk about the Ebony Horse women, who are now still part of the Hartford scene. We'll also just mention the movie Concrete Cowboy, which celebrates all of this in the context of black equestrians in the city of Philadelphia. So lots to come. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When the last song has been sung And the very last story has been told there's just one more little story I feel that my friends ought to know. Once there was a young Bronco Buster, he hailed from the state of Tennessee. Just a plain old everyday country boy, but the West is where he chose to be. Okay, it's a song about Nat Love. We're going to talk about Nat Love in just a second here, but let me just tell you in general what we're talking about today and why, too. We're going to talk about black cowboys, black cowboys in the time of the old and frequently wild West, but also black cowboys and cow men and cow women here in urban settings here in the United States right now. You know, I kind of got the idea of doing this show. I'm sitting there with my son watching this movie called Concrete Cowboy, which is on Netflix. It has Idris Elba and Method Man and Lorraine Toussaint and a 
couple of really uh, fine uh, young actors, including Caleb McLaughlin. And it is the story of a boy who rejoins his father, from whom he's been estranged. He leaves Detroit. He comes to Philadelphia. And there he encounters not only his father, played by Idris Elba, but this whole culture of, in fact, black men and women who keep horses in the city, ride horses in the city, and keep the old ways alive. So I'm watching this. Well, let's just hear a little bit of it. You're going to hear the very familiar voice of Idris Elba and some other folks. People in this country think all cowboys was white. That's some Hollywood, John Wayne bullshit. 50% of all cowboys were black, brown, bronze. Uh, some other color. <laughs> you said 50? We get them numbers from. Look it up, real rap. Even the Lone Ranger was black. <laughs> Who's the Lone Ranger? Get the f out of here. <laughs> really? Pop, you teaching this boy anything? Man, you doing a good job. No, he's right. Look, Hollywood has whitewashed us and just deleted us right out of the history books. They always trying to delete us from history books. Cowhand became cowboy. Did you know that? That's what it called us. Hey, boy, hold that cattle down while I brand it. Hey, boy, go break that horse. You know why we was able to break them horses so why? good? Why? Come on, why? Come on, Rome, tell us. Tell them this, I got to pee. <laughs> People used to believe that breaking a horse meant crushing the will of the animal, dominating, making them believe that the only way it was going to survive was to submit, right? Now, black folks, we knew that a horse wasn't meant to be dominated. Horses meant to be free. The only way you can realize its true spirit, its nature, is through love. Real rap right there, you feel that? Become one. All right, so that's Concrete Cowboys. And, and then that got me thinking, I was watching this movie, and I was thinking, I actually, because I'm so terribly old, remember in the 1970s when I was a reporter, I was actually from the 50s to the late 70s, there were a group of men, a group of black men up in Keeney Park called the Ebony Horsemen. And they kept horses up there in stables and stuff like that. And they rode in parades. And it was a really cool thing. And they were kind of, I think, connecting to that very tradition. They're gone now, but there still are the Ebony Horse women who kind of came a little bit after them. You're going to hear from an Ebony Horse woman in the latter part of the show. But right now, we want to talk about those cowboys, those cowboys mostly of the 19th century. And joining us to do that is the person who you would really want to talk to about this. His name is Darren Burnett III. He's an investigative reporter and long-form feature writer for Mel Magazine. He's the host and creator of, and I'm not kidding about this, this is the next podcast you're going to listen to. All right, whatever you're listening to now, this is the what you're going to add. You're going to add it like today or tomorrow. I mean, and it really is incredibly satisfying. So he's the host and creator of the iHeartRadio podcast, Black Cowboys. So first of all, Zarin Burnett III, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on, Colin. I really appreciate it. So maybe just talk a little bit about the the impulse to do this. And maybe there's no way for you, I think, to talk about the impulse to do this without talking about your, your dad, who you happen to have like the perfect character. I mean, you know, rather than having to do a nationwide hunt for like this kind of defining voice that would be talking a lot in your podcast, <laughs> you had to reach about eight feet away from you. But talk about your dad and how he kind of acquainted you with, with some of this stuff. So the, the journey to this podcast begins with uh, bedtime stories that my father used to tell me when I was a boy. He very much wanted me to have a, a, a view of America that included me and included my people and that for, for me to have a place in America in 
not only in the present, but in the past. And what that meant was to overcome the slave narratives that pretty much predominate the stories we hear about the black past. And I was uh, raised and I was born in Atlanta and raised in Atlanta for the first part of my life. And that meant I saw a lot of the history of slavery all around me. So my father very much wanted to counteract that and give me a sense of self-esteem. So he tells me these stories of these strong, proud black men and women who were ranging across the West and basically defining America the way that we think of it in the past. And he made me understand that this is my country because of those people. This is my history because of those people and that I could do whatever I wanted to do in the future because of those people in the past. And it gave me this really um, downright, like, in, in like, I couldn't lose this feeling, basically. It, it was something that he bred to my spirit and through these bedtime stories as a little boy. And obviously, as you can hear from the podcast, my father is quite the character. He is a, is a strongly opinionated man. He thinks in essays where he'll pr present to you his first thought and all of his supporting thoughts and his conclusion. He just is somebody who has considered most of the things he's going to speak on is something that he's thought about. He doesn't just give you like a off the cuff random answer that is you know not really based in anything other than just a, a flippant idea he really does have like the, these strong opinions and i wanted to kind of bring that forward because we don't typically get to hear a black father and black son have a conversation in the media and have it be one that is both positive but also trenchant and deep and about the bigger themes of life and not about trauma uh, necessarily yeah so um and he also just has a great speaking voice yes um, he does so um <laughs> The um, so I, I, you know, each episode of the podcast is really about a different figure from this period. Um, we opened the show uh, with the song about Nat Love. We didn't really get to the name Nat Love in the song, but um, we might as well begin there. I mean, you couldn't. Well, I would say you couldn't write a movie or a novel that would be more exciting than the story of Nat Love. I would sort of argue that Larry McTur McMurtry's no Lonesome Dove you know, does borrow on the legend of, uh, of Nat Love, not for the black character of Josh Dietz, played mm -hmm. by Nanny Glover in the movie, but really for Gus McRae. I mean, there's a scene in your podcast where he's being chased uh, by, by I can't remember which particular tribe, uh, uh, and, and he uh, gets- Victoria Band? Yeah, he gets, he gets shot. His horse gets shot out from under him. I mean, mm -hmm. well, first of all, you got, I'm getting ahead of the story. First of all, tell them who Nat Love was. So Nat Love was a born a slave and then- he had to basically take over his family after his father died, and he ended up being a young teenager when he was finally allowed to go off into the world on his own. And he walked barefoot from Tennessee all the way up to Dodge City, Kansas, a journey of about 900 miles. And there he became a cowboy. And the only reason he was able to become a cowboy is because back home, he had been breaking horses for the locals, uh, like the local farms, and he'd gotten really good at it. And he had a natural skill and natural talent for feeling what a horse's will wanted to do. He could feel its spirit. So then when he gets out to Dodge City, he tells these cowboys like, hey, I want to ride with you. And they're like, I don't know about that. And they try to saddle him up on a horse to prove that he's not ready to be a cowboy. And he rides that horse to a standstill and they're blown away. They hire him on the spot and it begins his life as a cowboy. And from there, he meets everybody. He meets Wild Bill Hickok. He meets Billy the Kid. He's around all of the great West moments. He's he's just outside of when, when uh, General George Armstrong Custer is killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn. He is just days away on that ride and rides into Deadwood bringing in cattle. He's always at the points of American history that we have these familiarities of, but we don't ever usually picture a black cowboy involved. And he very much tells these stories. And it's just a captivating, like, very full of himself, very big and, <laughs> and broad and willing to, like, tell a story that makes him the, the hero. So he is a, a great uh, person to write a memoir of the time. Yeah. And I mean, he really is exciting. I mean, he, yeah. he does have a somewhat 
unenlightened view uh, yes. of, of Native Americans. Uh, I mean, they're basically people who shoot at him and he shoots back at him and he has, therefore, unpleasant things. He calls him the Red Devil and all this stuff. Yes. But, I mean, you know, in, in a way that really would fit in with Lonesome Dove, he is... And I think the other thing that's really interesting about him is when he gets out there, he's never shot a gun. He goes into his first gunfight, never having fired a gun for any reason. No, has no familiarity with it because obviously slaves are not typically allowed to have firearms or be taught to shoot for the obvious obvious reasons. But then he's just sitting there in his first uh, fight when a gunfight and he has his gun in his hand. He has to be told to shoot it. And once he starts shooting it he realizes, oh, I don't have fear. And that that fearlessness is what he takes away from that moment where he almost gets killed in his very first gunfight. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I do sort of wonder, I mean, there's so many things in that little clip we played from Concrete Cowboy that kind of play into this, including that idea of breaking the horse. There's, there's yes. a, a pattern here uh, of um, one of the things that's happening sort of on that cusp, you know, be- beginning of the Civil War, beginning of Reconstruction. There's sort of this moment where, yeah, if you had certain skills, because it's also the opening of the West, uh, mm-hmm. if you had certain skills, if you could break a horse, if you could herd cattle, you know, you could sort of escape the fate that would would otherwise be waiting, might otherwise be waiting for you. There weren't that many opportunities for freed slaves up and down the East Coast, but there were vast opportunities uh, and, and a much more, a larger sense of open-mindedness if you were good at the stuff that you needed to be good at, right? Yes, there, there was a need for labor, skilled labor, and an open-mindedness because the need was so great. And then that, doesn't, that open-mindedness doesn't change until this East Coast civilization starts to show up 20, 30 years later after the initial period of the black cowboys going out to the West. Because initially, they have this Western idea of everybody's equal, everybody is, is what can you do with a, a gun in your hand? What can you do with a saddle underneath you? Like, and that's what a measure of a man or a measure of a woman is. And then that changes as the values and the, the cowboys labors, uh, the, the importance of their labor is minimized. Once you have the train, then all of a sudden you can push black cowboys off to the side. And then we haven't really seen them in history since that. So basically there is this moment where the black cowboy is highly valued. And then because of changes in labor, all of a sudden history changes. Right. There, and there is, you, you get a lot of, uh, you, get, you get some good history lessons in this podcast as well. Oh, um, stuff, I, stuff I hadn't necessarily known about or, or thought about all, all that much. But I guess, you know, before I want to get, we're going to take a break in a few minutes and then we'll come back and we'll talk about, because there's a way in which, yes, Nat Love kind of demonizes uh, Native Americans, but there's a, a huge amount of overlap between the Black Cowboy story and the Cherokee and, and otherwise Native American story uh, that appears in at least two of the other figures in your podcast. I want to talk about them after the break. But right now, I guess, I mean, to ask the obvious question, how come this is the first time I ever heard of Nat Love? <laughs> like, he's this really <laughs> exciting guy. Well, it's funny you say that. I, I started out as a screenwriter in Hollywood, and I wrote a Nat Love movie, and I pitched it around, and people really liked the story, but they didn't think that it would resonate with American audiences, and they definitely didn't think it would sell overseas. And so they said, oh, look, Westerns aren't hot right now. This doesn't have legs overseas, and America doesn't know these stories. So that was the reason why I was told these st- that what wasn't a viable movie. But the guy's story is such that, like, you know, American public education doesn't typically tell these types of stories. For instance, um, moving slightly uh, afield, you have like the Seminole Wars, right? Uh, we hear about Andrew Jackson, but we don't ever really hear about the Seminole Wars. I didn't really hear about the Seminole Wars in American public education. So you definitely aren't going to hear about an individual character like a Nat Love, who is a perfect representation of a period of time of history. And I think it would be important and it would be really good if, if teachers of history could focus on people 
to tell the stories of history rather than names and dates and battles and so forth, because people can, they, listeners and anybody who's like, you know, in a lecture, they can connect to a story and then build the context of why it's important and why these major sweeps of history uh, affect the people of the time. And then all of a sudden you're invested. And so I find that the emotional connection to these black cowboys helped to tell the stories of history, of American history, and to provide a new lens to look at it. And I think that that is something I'd love to see American public education take the standpoint of let's teach history from the people standpoint as opposed to the names, dates and battles standpoint. Right. Yeah, I can guarantee you kids would pay more attention in class if uh, they had stuff like well, what's in your podcast. So uh, we're going to take a little break here. We're talking to Zarin uh, Burnett III, investigative reporter and feature writer for Mail Magazine. Significantly, he's the host and creator of the next podcast you will be listening to. It's called ba- Black Cowboys. We'll be back after this. Young desperado of those Oklahoma hills. The story is true, so now must be told. This is how it happened many, many years ago. Bill's dad was a soldier in that 10th Calvary. Mother was a maiden of a tribe of Cherokee. He was gracious, he was The Harder They Fall, which is on Netflix, uh, stars a lot of your favorite black actors. Idris Elba, Delroy Lindo, Lakeith Stanfield, Regina King, Zazie Beetz, Jonathan Majors in a Western that has a kind of flashy Tarantino style to it. Let's hear a little clip. Hey, hey, you got your lucky coin, don't you? Grow up, Jim. This is real grown man. We can die. But we're not going to die. So I'm lightning with the blam blams. Admit it. You know, you might could be, but I hear say there's a quick draw, more lightning than you. Go by the name of Cherokee Bill. Cherokee Bill. You hear say. You don't see say. So I say, Cherokee Bill. All right. Now we're talking to uh, Zarin Burnett III, an investigative reporter and feature writer for Mail Magazine. His podcast is called Black Cowboys. So I think since we've at least mentioned Cherokee Bill, we should talk a little mm-hmm. bit about this. There's, I mean, yes, Nat Love was sort of an inveterate Indian fighter. But uh, a lot of these other stories, there's quite a bit of overlap between the black story uh, and the Native American experience. Uh, tell people a little bit about Cherokee Bill. Well, the... Cherokee Bill was born Crawford Goldsby. He is the son of a Cherokee mother and a Buffalo soldier father. And he's a perfect example of how you can tell the story of the Native American indigenous tradition in in America without mentioning Black America. But you can't tell the story of Black America without mentioning the indigenous involvement in our story here. So his example I wanted to share with people so they could see how much and how intertwined Black America is with the Native indigenous experience of of North America. So here he is, uh, the son of a Cherokee mother, the son of a Buffalo soldier. The Buffalo soldier gets involved in basically what's a, a race riot down in Texas and has to go on the run. So then young Crawford is raised by his mother and the community, and he ends up, you know, basically taking a wayward path, but only because he's trying to protect his brother and trying to protect his sister and trying to protect the people he loves. And he does this through what's basically sociopathic violence. But he is this outlaw that becomes a folk hero because the people of the of the area, the Oklahoma Territory, the he is an example of a defiance because 
the encroachments on their land and so forth. He is basically a spirit of the, the defiant ind indigenous spirit, the defiant black American spirit. And so people come to love him. And then also he defends his sister, although he does it violently. And this also builds his, his reputation as somebody who is willing to defend his people. And that was something of uh, you know high value at that time. And it's not something that was typically valued at that time by a lot of other people. As you read in the newspapers of the time, they would call him gorilla, which was basically to uh, connect him to, with the threat of black violence and minimize his Native American side. So you see like, these aspects of like racism, but he's constantly defying it to the point that the president of the United States considers giving him clemency from death row. He's all, the Supreme Court considers his execution and decides, okay, well, you know, hi, uh, hanging judge Isaac Parker did the right thing. We'll, we'll let this outlaw go. But his story became such a national headline generating uh, story of what the Wild West was like as it was basically coming to a close, that he becomes this national figure, but also in his to his people, a folk hero. So the flip side of Cherokee Bill, I think, is Bass Reeves, who might be my favorite character in the series, and I know he's one of your favorite characters in the yeah. series. So he's a lawman. Uh, tell us a uh -huh. little bit more. He's a lawman who is so formidable and so esteemed the Bass Reeves could shoot you and kill you, and you could be a horrible racist. And then, you, with your dying breath, you'd want to like give your gun to Bass Reeves and say, "Yeah, <laughs> that's that's when you yeah. know that you're you're an impressive person. Somebody you just be essentially sent to his grave says, "I'd like to give you my gun with my dying breath." <laughs> exactly. I'd like to honor the fact that you are such a bad, bad man. Because Bass Reeves was uh, basically a a very principled man. He was like uh, raised in slavery. He fights his master in the Civil War and, and basically wins his freedom, walks out of the Civil War and then walks into Indian territory where he becomes a scout. Eventually he becomes a lawman when they decide they need U.S. Marshals. He becomes one of the first black U.S. Marshals west of the Mississippi and then goes on to have this prolific lawman career where he never unfairly punishes people due to the fact that he was before a slave. He doesn't use that the power that he has of the gun and the license to kill. And instead, he is an utmost character of like what we would want from any lawman in any part of the country. And he does this both lethally, killing 14 people in the course of his 3,000 arrests, but also he never really like uh, misleads, even though he does use deception as a lawman, but he doesn't like lie to people. He doesn't, he doesn't emotionally mistreat them. He's very straight up and he's so straight up, he even goes after his own son when his son is brought up on a, on a charge of murder. He's the one who says, give me the writ. And then he goes out to arrest his own son. He believes in justice in a way that is the, the connective tissue between all of us. Like that the law binds us. He was the defender of the law and the example of the law that is in a way, his spirit was a binding aspect of America and was a great example of what every lawman should want to be in this country. You know, he's also, he does this for a really long time. I think it's something like 32 years or something. 32 years. 32 years. Yeah. And so there's 32 years of people shooting at him too. Uh, <laughs> and 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 so he's also a survivor. Although it would be- at, at the end of his life or towards the end of his legal career when he was a cop, one of the guys that uh, he ends up arresting has a dream that Bass Reeves is coming to get him, and he goes and turns himself in because he's so terrified of Bass Reeves and his dreams. Right. Also, it would be a mistake to think that you had shot Bass Reeves, too, because he was yes, good, at, yes, good, at, good at making you think that something bad had happened to him when nothing nothing had. But, but you know, there's also, because it's so such a big career, it kind of spans a turn, you know, a turn that you document a little bit in, in the way that the West is being overseen by the federal government, the way the West is yeah. un understood. And this turn seems to maybe even manifest itself a little bit in this kind of, you know, not particularly persuasive case brought against uh, Bass Reeves. So I don't know if you can summarize all of that in a few minutes, but, but give it a shot. 
Okay, so basically, uh, the, it, um, the 1876 election, Rutherford B. V. Hayes, you have the compromise, which ends Reconstruction with the 1877 compromise. But that doesn't really start to completely take shape in America until Grover Cleveland uh, becomes president in 1896. And then you have Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, I'm sorry, 1890, yeah, 1896, and Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. And that creates, in that 20-year window, a huge switch in American federal uh, control of the, like, the the marshals and all the civil services so you start seeing the people who are running it the the u.s marshals who are appointed by the federal government are a switch from republican to democrat and when they come democrats the back at that time it was a different democrat different republican situation so that meant less protection for a black civil service uh black civil servant like bass reeves it meant that his new boss then helped conspire to bring him up on a falsified murder charge and he had to go to trial and defend himself and to be able to continue to do justice so racism comes for him in the form of a trumped up trial but it comes from the form it comes to the indian territory in the form of basically now there are no longer the protections of the federal government so local law becomes completely the control and what that means is that depending on who the judges and the appointees are in that area you could be under a completely racist administration and this is exactly what happens in oklahoma so bass reeves gets sidelined towards the end of his career after being just a, an indomitable force and a truly just man he gets pushed out because of just petty politics and american racism that turns into systemic racism which then leads into the formation of that uh, era of the 20s when the, the ku klux klan starts to really pop off and we have been basically trying to undo what was set into uh, legal stonework at that time. Yeah, there's a way in which, you know, the, the um, our cognizance, our, our awareness of the Wild West is really, really kind of coincides not with the peak of the Wild West, but with the beginning of the decline of the Wild West for a lot of the factors that you've described, the, the railroad, uh, the end of Reconstruction, so many things. So when we think of, I mean, by the time Buffalo Bill Cody is walking around, tra- traveling around, celebrating the Wild West, it's kind of over in a way, right? There's, yes, completely. There's, yeah, I mean, its best years are, are behind it at the time that we're really beginning to understand it. Yeah, by the time we have Buffalo Bill Cody, the, the West at that point is pretty much cosplay. It's people going out there and and giving the feeling of something that was either a bygone era, some people remember, or for the children who never saw it, basically enlivening what they've heard about or the, the stories of the dime store novels. So I guess, you know, I've got a minute or two left here and we can talk about anything you really want to talk about. I guess I'm kind of wondering, I mean, first of all, is is the podcast series over now? I mean, have you done everything you're going to do? Is there going to be a season two or because well, it's well, yeah. we're discussing that right now. My executive producer uh, and I have been going back and forth about we're signed on for a second season. We're just trying to decide what the second season will be. There are another like there are black cowboys like George McJunkin, Bob Lemons, Jim Beckworth, John Ware, Bose Icard, Isom Dart. I could do a whole second season on <laughs> Black Cowboys. We've also talked about possibly doing something about freedom on the water, about black mariners, um, black pirates, slave revolts on the open water, maybe looking at freedom on water as a companion to freedom on land. And we're not quite certain, but there, there is obviously a lot more to tell about the, the history of black cowboys and that I, this is just a, a kind of a a cursory view, a survey course, if you will, to give people and to whet the appetite and give them an excitement about learning more. Right. So, and I, we didn't have time to talk about like Stagecoach Mary, who's also just a tremendous oh, yeah, character amazing. and w- one who actually captured the uh, imagination of Gary Cooper. Uh, anyway, we don't have time for that. But and that's good because you need to listen to this whole podcast. It would be really dumb of us to start summarizing all these people in two or three minutes. I mean, these these episodes are forty five, fifty minutes, and they're really you'll just be mesmerized the entire time. So, um, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Con. I really appreciate it. All and right. also, uh, just one last thing I would yeah. say. I'd like to thank uh, Jason English and Ryan Murdoch, Michelle Lands, Jeremy Thal, and Marissa Brown, the team who helped make Black Cowboys. And obviously, of course, my pop as well. Yeah. No, your dad's amazing. Um, he really is. All right. So thanks very much. The, yeah, the series is Black Cowboys. So what's going to happen now is we're going to take a little break. It's about five minutes long. And some people are going to ask you to support this station. And it's really good if you do it during this show, too. I mean, it's good for from my point of view anyway and from the point of view of everybody who works on this show so yeah if you could think about maybe listening to what they say and making the call you know sometime in between now and 2 p.m but yeah help us out okay Mama always said you was an angel. I forgot ghosts, but the stars he never came through. He got ghosts, but those worlds he never came through. Get that horse in his wagon. Get that man in his rifle. Get that priest in his Bible. For them that's dead on arrival. Them that pray see heaven. Them that don't see devil. Separate but equal. Say them that slave my people So break them chains and shackles Okay, first of all, i got to say some thank yous. Um, Kat Pastor is the technical producer of this show. She's keeping everything humming and everything moving, uh, which is essential. Betsy Kaplan is the producer of this episode. Thanks to everybody who worked on this show. Uh, and uh, thanks also if you pledged during that break. So um, as I said... Uh, you know, I kind of got the idea of doing this show. I'm sitting there with my son watching this movie called Concrete Cowboy, which is on Netflix. Uh, and it, it is very much about sort of modern urban uh, black Americans who have horses in the city. I see you met Boo. Your bunkmate last night. Harp just bought Boo at the auction. Took four of us to get him in the trailer. Shook up, scared. Dangerous to even the roughest of these riders. You should have got your head bashed in. What do I find? Daniel laying there in the lion's den, snuggled up side by side. What that mean? It means the booze yours. Nah. Nah. He won't let anyone else near. No, 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 no. F that. Ooh, you got a mouth like your daddy. Well, that's the only thing I got from him. Listen to me. The past is not the present. All right? What, you too dumb to play by some rules? Well. All right. But you're not going to get to sleep in my stables. So I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, where do I know this story from? Well, the truth is that, in, as I said earlier, in the 1970s, um, here in Hartford, I was 
very acutely aware of and, and knew some um, uh, some men who were involved in something called the Ebony Horseman, uh, which uh, came out of the North End and Keeney Park and stuff like that. Uh, they're not around anymore, but they're very much they very closely resembled the tradition that we were seeing there in Concrete Cowboy. The Ebony Horse women, however, are still around. They came a little bit later. We're going to tell you how that happened. The person who's going to tell you that is Patricia Kelly, a U.S. Marine Corps Vietnam era veteran, an African American cowgirl, and the founder of uh, Ebony Horse Women. She was inducted into the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame in 2015. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Colin. Glad to be here. So uh, tell us your story. Tell us how you came to the world of horses. Uh, you grew up in, in the North End of Hartford, too, right? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Well, um, Betsy and I had a little laugh about this about a week ago, a little less than a week ago. Uh, my family bought a home on Clark Street, and it was a predominantly white community. I think we were the third, maybe second or third black family um, on the block. and uh, residents were not very happy about that at all. But I'd lived next door to a Jewish grocer who had um, a horse and wagon. And the woman who sold my family the house was named Betsy Kaplan. Huh. And Betsy owned a lot of property in the North and Hartford. And, and, and it was told that she was a Holocaust survivor and she hated prejudice. And so on one particular day, the, the neighbors got together a petition and um, made her come to, to explain why she sold this home to my, to my parents. And I was peeking from around the corner looking at this commotion out in the front of our house when I heard this beckoning in back of me. So I turned and I looked and there is this, this, this guy, this white guy with a white beard and a big stomach. And I turned and I looked and I said, oh my God, I live next door to Santa Claus. <laughs> and he, he looked at me and he said, little girl, come here. You don't need to see that. And it was this raggedy fence that uh, separated our properties. And he was standing next to a horse. And he said, do you like the horse, little girl? And I nodded, yes. He said, come. So I climbed through this raggedy picket fence and Mr. Fisher handed me a brush and it was a wrap. <laughs> Mr. Fisher and I were inseparable. I became enthralled with horses. I was completely um, taken by it. I, my, all of my free time when I wasn't in school, I was hanging out with Mr. Fisher. Mr. Fisher taught me how to tack a horse. He taught me how to ride a horse. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s that I had learned that my father had been a jockey and had had a terrific um, accident and never rode again and never spoke about it. But it explained why he hated it so much that I started into horses. So I guess that's the short story of, of how I got in. You know, I mentioned uh, the Ebony Horsemen at the beginning of this, and I know there were uh, a number of legendary figures there. And I, I think uh, there were a couple of, I think it was Willie and Eddie Merritt. Uh, one of them was yeah. Puddinhead. Yeah. Was Willie Puddinhead? Which one was Puddinhead? Willie was Puddinhead, yeah. yes. So, and, and so he, he helped you, uh, I think, sort of map out a plan to start the Ebony Horsewomen? Well, actually, you know, they had been around since um, the 50s, the, I think. The late 50s, yeah. early 60s. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got out of the Marine Corps and came home, they were phasing out. And, and they had actually, uh, they had really phased out. And um, Willie had a package store on, on Albany Avenue, but he also had a farm in Glastonbury. 
And I went to him at his package store and I said, listen, I, I wanted, this is my bucket list. I need to get back to riding again. I rode while I was in the Corps, but I'm back home now. And he had um, three horses at his property. And what was wonderful about uh, Puddinghead was that he hated women. I think he had been married like a gazillion times and had decided that he didn't like women anymore. So I was safe. Yeah. So my youngest daughter and I went out to his farm and the incredible piece that I found riding his horses um, did it for me. And I knew other women, um, urban ladies that were friends of mine that I thought could benefit from it. And so he even though he hated women, he kind of gave us the the blueprint. He kind of gave us, you know, what to do, what not to do kind of thing. And so I, before he knew it, he had a house full of women because um, I had invited everybody I knew. <laughs> and um, he put up with us for almost a year and we rode his three horses into the dirt. And about a year later, he had had enough of us. And so he got the courage up to kick us out. And, and so we went off on our own and, and just kind of, you know, followed the somewhat blueprint that he gave us to where we are now. Although, you know, what they were a riding club mm-hmm. and we 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 have a different focus than that. We started off with, you know, women riding in parades and whatnot. But that quickly changed to a focus with um, on children. Right. There's a, a lot of ways in which this works. I mean, we'll talk about equine assisted therapy in just a second. But um, but there's also a way in which I can't remember where I read this, but there was a story of you and some of the other horsewomen riding through a neighborhood and, and a little boy coming out and saying, is that a horse? And then yeah. turn, turning back to his friend and said, I told you, I told you that was a horse. I mean, that's sort of an amazing thing to think of somebody, you know, who, who because of where he lives, because of a, a, a certain amount of isolation, hasn't seen a horse before. Exactly. And that is what turned the tide for us. That that particular incident right there turned the tide. This child was not certain whether or not he was actually looking at a horse. He was amazed that it was. And I said, OK. And the, the, the interesting thing about it, um, we were in Keeney Park when it happened. And the, the legacy of Keeney is that, you know, Frederick Olmsted built it for horses mm-hmm. and built it for carriage rides. And here is this kid in Keeney Park, not sure of this four-legged animal of exactly what it was. And when we we, we ran upon that, I said, okay, that's it. Um, it it's got to be about these kids now. And of course, during that time, it was the height of the heroin epidemic in Hartford in the in the uh, early to mid 80s. So it was timely. Right. So there, there's a thing and it, it really has acquired quite a lot of national prominence, uh, this idea of equine assisted uh, therapy. Uh, and, and so talk about sort of what do the ebony horse women do with that? How, how does that work? So when we first started, we we understood we knew as women that these horses did something for us. And we began to see it working on kids as well. And what we we didn't know the level of trauma that these kids were in, but we knew that they were that they were under some trauma. And we watched uh, several years how these horses worked it out with very little conversation. And because you know, with with sometimes urban children, you get two kinds of kids. You got one that talks too much, knows everything, can't tell them anything, and the other kind that's just surrendered. You know, just nothing to say. And and these horses began to unlock and unleash those 
inner traumas, traumas so that these kids were able to talk about it and talk about it in a safe space with a non-judgmental entity, a horse, and, and, and they began to heal. And when we recognized that this was a real thing, that this was science, this was not just, you know, feel good um, fluff stuff, we began to search out what is the science behind it. And evidently, uh, this goes all the way back to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. So we we began to find what entities were out there that were was actually teaching the science behind it. And so we we found these entities, we we trained with these entities, we got certified with these entities, and we be, began to incorporate it. And of course it worked. However, Colin, there became a big gap. And the gap came about with the um, the entities not understanding culture mm-hmm. in the application of equine-assisted therapy or psychotherapy. And that is what led us to become a certifying agency ourselves, because you cannot really understand what the horse is telling you if you're not competent in understanding the culture. And when you say that, I assume part of what you mean is, and I mean, for example, equine-assisted therapy has like a whole high-end version of it. I think you can go out to Kent or someplace like that in Connecticut and there's, you know, but but what you're talking about here really are kids who aren't having post-traumatic stress syndrome. They're having trauma. Yeah, they're in active trauma. Yeah. They're in active trauma. And it doesn't matter if it's post-traumatic uh, for some individuals or active. What happens within a, within the, the session is that um, the horse begins to read energies, okay? And the energies, um, whatever he reads, he's going to um, model it. He'll model it. And, and, you, and the, the therapist who's certified in equine-assisted therapy, who understands equine psychology, can understand what this horse is doing, why this horse is not joining up, why this horse is standing off, is not wanting to come in. This therapist understands the language, but the question becomes, whose energy is it picking up? So, for instance, if you have a predominantly, let's say a white female, that is the therapist in the session, and you have a black male, and this black male is, is let's say he just, he just got um, uh, some bad news or he's been in trauma for a long time or he's been in the prison system or he's been without work for a long time. The horse is picking up energy. The energy that the horse is picking up could be apprehension, fear coming from the therapist because mm-hmm. now she's, in, she's now trying to relate to this, this black guy. She doesn't understand his, his um, animation in the in the session and she picks it up as some sort of fear-based situation. The horse is telling her something, but it could be her energy that he's picking up and not his energy. So when you pair a therapist with another demographic, it's incumbent upon that therapist to understand the culture of that demographic so that whatever you see in the therapy is read 
correctly. Got I it. Mean, does Got that make it. sense? Yes. You all know? right. Unfortunately, we have to stop here. I could talk to you all day. There's all kinds of. I want to. I wish we had time for the talk about the thing at Dillon Stadium, and but there's no time. But Patricia Kelly, U.S. Marine Corps Vietnam era veteran, African American cowgirl, founder of the Ebony Horsewomen. Uh, thanks to everybody who listened today, and um, keep keep learning about this. Isn't the whole area is just an amazing, amazing story. She was gentle as a kitten, but the hardest period cold. The record said the trip was made. Her vow she kept it, it was paid. She had the spirit of an eagle, the heart of a mountain lion. No mortal man did sister Mary knuckle down. Being red, black, white, yellow, or brown. <laughs> <laughs>